From the hills of central New York, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. Stan Koska, president of Rhizo Solutions, a company focused on developing innovative chemistry for soil water repellents. Stan is a longtime member of the turfgrass industry, authoring many of the definitive articles on surfactants, and having spent almost 25 years as the chief scientist at Aquatrols before assuming his current position. It would be hard to find someone who has more comprehensive knowledge of soil water repellency and the history of soil surfactant chemistry than Stan. Just a note before we get started, it's our 10th season of Frankly Speaking, and it's time to thank the folks at Dryject who have been with us from the very beginning. I've been an advocate of Dryject services because I've seen the results, how it improves performance, and maximizes productivity by aerating, top dressing, and amending in a single pass. Don't take my word for it. Check them out at dryject.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Dr. Stan Koska, someone that I've been wanting to talk to for quite a while on a number of uh, issues. Stan, I don't think we're going to get to your culinary expertise, but anybody that follows you on Twitter knows that you've had your run of producing some of the finest imagery of meals you've cooked. And what I like is the wine pairing that goes along with it. So thanks very much for doing that. A longtime scientist in this particular area of our discussion today, soil water repellency and soil surfactants. And Stan, let's start really deep on soil water repellency. You, uh, Cal and Mike published a paper back in 2020 on how this has become a more popular topic, soil water repellency that is. You were kind to cite Louis Decker's work sort of as the foundation for this. But my question is actually really specific. We've always associated soil water repellency with sandy soils, right? In particular, I know you've published some stuff in dune sands, and obviously the stuff in turf is predominant in sands. Can you talk a little bit about in native soils or loamier soils or soils that have maybe finer particles or percentages of clay in them, Is soil water repellency something we associate with those soils? I'm assuming when we have more clay, we do. But can you give me a little bit of a background on soil water repellency, not necessarily in sands, but in soils as well? Yeah, it's most obvious in coarser textured soils. That's the easiest place to see it. Why? Because there's so little surface area. If you have any organic material that's drying out, that is going through conformational change and becoming hydrophobic, it's going to be more pronounced in that environment. Mm-hmm. However, it can occur in a diversity of, of soil types. In it will be soil. Matter of fact, at the location, I'm in Maryland today. It's all clay. You know, the superintendent and the owner at this course were talking today about their difficult clay, hard clay soils, and I put a drop of water on some of it, and it beat it up in front of me. Mm-hmm. So it occurs... In a diversity of soils, it occurs in volcanic soils. There are reports from California on it in certain clays in that part of the world. It's generally associated with uh, organic matter in those soils. Hmm. So if you've got a duff layer, for example, in a forest location, that duff layer at the soil interface deposits a layer of hydrophobic material on the surface of that soil. Okay, so in a practical sense, Stan, when golf course superintendents are managing soil water repellency, and and you can answer this for either environment, we'll take it for sand because it's probably better studied, 
I've often thought, and of course, superintendents know, they dry out their areas and eventually they dry out in a non-uniform way. And so you get what we refer to colloquially as localized dry spot, right, where you get that beating up. Mm -hmm. What has prevented us from really developing soil moisture levels? I mean, now that we've got these meters out there, maybe they're buried or maybe we're using handhelds. Is there anything stopping us from determining these critical soil water content levels or what I call breaking points, you know, where the soil begins to break and starts to become repellent? Is there research we need to get better data on this or is it really a moot point because it's not going to be uniform and we're going to have spots of it anyway? Number one, there's lots of answers, Frank. Good. Number one is how uniform are your soils? How uniform is your irrigation system? How effectively are you delivering water to that surface? That's a component of it. Well, we assumedly have uniform sands, right? We build these things out of specced mixes, engineered mixes. We take sands, for an example. We've probably got the uniformity licked in that sense. And you'd want to think uh, on putting greens again, uh, uh, well, let's just say flat areas anyway, obviously, as you get undulations. Thank you, because I was going to interject yeah. the slope that I'm looking at right now mm-hmm. on a green that we're working on and the striping that is so clearly demarked in untreated plots uh, on that slope. So is it possible to get soil moisture readings where we'll be able to determine if they're going to break and become repellent? If you get down in the low double digits, you know, that magic point where it becomes hard and fast, mm-hmm. you're really walking on the edge of a razor. Mm-hmm. Single digits, you start hitting that point of soil basically going to that critical water content, where suddenly the conformational change of the organic matter within that soil lets the lipophilic, the hydrophobic portions of that organic matter predominate. Okay, this is the second time you've mentioned it, and I want to clarify it both for myself and the listeners. When you say conformational change... That means these compounds exist in the soil at all times, but change their conformation under uh, lower water levels, yes? Yes. There's lots of research going on today. I mean, literally real-time publications coming out on, on this whole rhizosphere environment. So I'm going to say, if we look at it from the traditional perspective of these organic coatings, yeah, you're going to dry it down for them to take effect. However, there's a lot of things being exuded by plants. Mucilage, for example, there's a lot of work going on in Europe on this right now. Looking at this polysaccharide-rich material the plants exude, it's basically photosynthesate that's exuded from the roots. Roughly 70% of the carbon fixed by the plant is exuded in the roots. Well, if that stuff dries out, it has small amounts of lipophilic compounds in it. It changes the behavior. So not only does it help hold water in the root zone. Once it dries out, it changes the behavior of water. Hmm. This is a slightly different concept than the whole coating thing, because this is occurring in pore spaces. This is occurring in a, a millimeter or two around the root. Hmm. So this is where the cutting-edge work is all going, and perhaps putting a spotlight on, some, on new ways of, of managing water and how plants respond to applied water. Well, I'll just take your first comment. I mean, my first thought was that, yeah, of course... There's all this stuff in there. You've got fungal biomass. You've got root cells sloughing off all the time, right? But I'm wondering, why are plants exuding that level of exudates? Are they communicating with other organisms in the root zone? What is Why 
all that exudation. I mean, I'm familiar with phytosiderophores, right? Chelating agents and things like that. But what is the nature of this 50% photosynthate exudation you talk about? It has a range of purposes. One is it's uh, an osmotic protectant when it's hydrated. That's number one. Number two, it's a ready source of nutrients for microorganisms. And those microorganisms can do anything from they can either release enzymes that help degrade organic materials or inorganic materials, solubilize them to make them more plant available. They may produce hormone-like materials that the plant then can translocate and have effects. Mm -hmm. Influence, for example, stomatal opening and transpiration. Uh, They can help microorganisms that are biocontrol agents and help suppress disease. It's just a handful of examples. Mike Cadanza and I give a seminar on this at the golf show, usually, and in some of the regional shows. So let me ask you about some more terminology. I noticed not only is your new company called Rhizo Solutions, but you talk a lot about the rhizosphere, right? And, of course, we use uh, common terms like root zone, bulk soil. And so can you differentiate in your mind why you keep using that word rhizosphere versus root zone? I'm going to quote a paper by a colleague, Dr. Paul Hallett, the University of Aberdeen. Paul's a local boy for those of us here in North America. He's from the Toronto area and a good guy to go out and learn about soils with. And a comment he made in a publication that everything that gets into a plant has to first pass through the rhizosphere. Now, what is the rhizosphere? The rhizosphere is a few millimeters of, let's use sand as an example, sand grains around the root. It's the area that has the most intensive biological activity within the soil. Again, getting back to microbial populations, communication between microbes and plants, communication plant to plant, et cetera, access to nutrients, solubilization, access to water, and retaining water. But a place that can be your friend can also, under less than desirable conditions, let's say making it hard and fast on a golf green, or as we're experiencing currently here in much of the the mid-Atlantic and Northeast, is a dry, high ET spring, everything dries out. And then it becomes more difficult to wet. Again, because those lithophilic compounds, hydrophobic compounds, begin to predominate in the environment. It's very interesting, Stan, as you sort of have reintroduced this topic. Listen, everybody bumps into the term rhizosphere when they're probably taking a soils class or a plant class. It's not like most people don't know what it is, but it's not a common term that we use. It seems serendipitous that as you're talking about this upper layer of the profile, it's exactly what we're talking about with the new organic matter 246 testing or the testing that the USGA Mm -hmm. is coming around with. Do you foresee that test informing some of the ways we may be using soil surfactants in the future with the way you've been describing rhizosphere, like that upper two millimeters of the surface? It's right around two to three millimeters around the root. So that's different from the surface of the soil. I want to make that clear. Okay, so you're not talking about the top two centimeters of the soil. You're just talking about the area right around the roots. So if the roots are four inches down... You're saying the rhizosphere is two millimeters around that root, four inches down. Correct. But isn't there something unique about the upper two centimeters of all of our SAM profiles? And isn't that where most of your trouble comes? Oh, that's where organic matter and the more organic matter you have, 
the greater the propensity for that organic matter, fat, leaf detritus, all of those things to become hydrophobic. It's almost that there are multiple phenomena occurring at dovetail at some point. So as we dry it down, all these changes occur and everything just clicks. By the way, I'm sitting here with my fingers crossed, putting my hands together, trying to imagine all of these materials changing their behavior. Mm-hmm. And as they hit a critical point in moisture content, the whole system collapses. Okay, so you get that collapse. We all know it. We all see it. And you're exactly right. In 2023, when we're recording this, we've had a really dry start to the growing season in you know, the end of April and, and through the whole month of May. Now, the solution to this has historically been soil surfactants. Now, again, in your 2020 paper, you listed 192 products, soil surfactants on the market just in America, 192, and then another 65 in the UK and Ireland at that time. So I don't want to go crazy with this, right? Because you guys have written the definitive paper. You and the late Stan Zontek and Mike uh, have done this work a number of times. What I want to know is, again, the sort of colloquial words we use like holders and strippers and all these sort of wetting agent <laughs> words we use. You know what I'm talking about, right? Makes the water wetter, all the stuff that makes us both smile. When you think about soil surfactant chemistry, and I know you've been thinking about it for the better part of 35, 40 years now, Stan, how do you explain the soil surfactant chemistry to someone who really hasn't really thought about this much in the past, just bought a wetting agent, it worked, and maybe now it doesn't work. How do you start to talk to them about the various ones that are out there and how they might work to solve localized dry spots? I would normally start out in a conversation talking about where we've come from, going back to some of the early materials back in the 50s and 60s and early 70s that were basically spray adjuvants. People made some observations on them. And yeah, they had influences on contact angle, and they helped water infiltrate. You notice I use the word infiltrate mm-hmm. into soils, and as a consequence, turf responded better. Okay, well, that's led us to concepts of, you know, there have been other chemistries introduced over time. There has been a propensity in the marketplace of a lot of things that are the same being marketed as different. But some of the things that we do today is looking at soil moisture contents. You talked about using soil moisture probes, for example. That will differentiate to you how products perform. And that's where you depend upon research coming out of academia or even industry, consultants in the field doing studies that systematically look at materials and determine how well they improve infiltration, how well they improve distribution of water, what is the consequence of that soil moisture over time, and then what happens to things like plant performance, disease suppression. That does occur. There are biostimulant-like activities from some materials. I use the term Mm biostimulant-like. A range of effects that are beyond simply fixing dry spots. Well, and we're going to get to that, Stan, but I want to talk about what looks like the biggest category the block coal polymer category, right? They are 80 to 90% of the marketplace. Okay, so does it matter which one I buy? It does. I'm looking at trials today, and there are several different materials uh, in this trial. Most of them are one kind of block coal polymer, or let's put it this way, EOPO-type polymer, which is the basic components used in a block coal polymer. And there are some dramatic differences. There are a number of materials that work acceptably, 
there's a couple that work really well and a couple that work really poorly. So what was that term, EOPO? EOPO, ethylene oxide, propylene oxide. There you go. Those are the building blocks in block polymers. Okay, you travel around probably way more than I do, and you go to many more glamorous places than I get to go to. But one of the things I do notice is superintendents are much more thoughtful about the soil surfactants that they're using and they test them, and some work better than others. And, you know, for example, a lot of them, particularly on fairways, right, obviously cost is a factor, and so is longevity. But I've often wondered, Stan, how much does the way a superintendent waters, like how far they let it dry out? Obviously, the soil type's going to dictate a lot of that. But how much does superintendent's watering behavior, the either the precision that they use, let's assume that their systems all work well, do you see differences based on superintendents' watering behaviors? Boy, that's a tough question to give an answer to because it's, let's see, do they have a new system? Well, let's assume they all work well. Some guys are real deficit irrigators, right? And some guys are like, you know, I don't like to bring it as close to the edge, right? I'm perfectly if happy. If you're a deficit irrigator, you're always on the edge of having a, I'll use the word catastrophe just for conversation point. You're at that point where it could flip. Mm-hmm. And that's gonna, you're going to see that in the kind of weather conditions we're having currently. Will that determine the chemistry you choose sometimes? The answer to that is yes. If you go out using material that's, a, I'll call it an irrigation, something that's low active ingredient level, you're putting out just a little bit of it to help, oh, make the water get off the surface. That's usually going to run some problems in these kinds of conditions. Okay. And it's almost to the point that, you may need to go to an application of something you would normally use on your greens. Okay. Will it, uh, will it have to be the same rate? Depends where you are from an environmental perspective. Okay, so listen, I want you to take a minute and talk about your ProWet Evolve because it sounds like that's something unique, and I want to give you a chance to differentiate it from maybe the products that you might be referring to up to this point. You you guys have really uh, done an excellent job in developing uh, some new chemistries. Congrats for that. You're welcome. Uh, talk to me a little bit about this ProWet Evolve. ProWet Evolve is uh, a chemistry we developed a couple of years ago, and it was predicated on looking at some unusual EOPO-containing molecules. And we found some that, under laboratory conditions, gave us really impressive responses, looking simply at wetting phenomena in a severely hydrophobic soil. And that severely hydrophobic soil came from the the pine barrens of New Jersey, areas that are all sand, Mm -hmm. usually finer textured sand, predominantly under scrub oak pine forests. We found this material worked really well. We didn't want anybody using it commercially. The reason nobody was using it commercially was it was impossible to work with. So we then proceeded on a strategy of, okay, how can we find another material to use to improve its solubility so we can be more apt to find an application for it? Okay. We stumbled across the material and said, oh, look, it improves the solubility. And it was another related compound. Okay, that's great. And we started looking at wetting and much to our surprise, A, wet one way really well. Mm -hmm. B was nowhere near as good, but it improved solubility. But when we put A plus B together, it was marginally better than A. 
interesting. Okay. So that's what took us down the path that we pursued. Okay. All right. So listen, let's take a break. Give a chance for the folks to hear from a message from our sponsors that make this all possible. Uh, I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with my pal, Dr. Stan Koska. And we'll be right back after this message. I had the chance to meet Ken Ross several years ago when frost spray technology was just getting into the golf turf market. And like many of his fellow Minnesota natives, Ken and Frost Inc. had well-designed, innovative, and reliable technology, in this case, spray application technology. It's been a pleasure for me to advocate for the use of their products as I have seen how they perform. See for yourself by visiting them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Dr. Stan Koska. We just, you know, tried to lay some foundation for some really interesting things that are happening, Stan, with uh, surfactant chemistry. And let's start out with the seed coating work that you published this past year in the environmental horticulture uh, with the usual suspects. I do see a couple of other names in there. Micah McMillan was the lead author. Talk a little bit about the use of soil surfactants as seed coatings, because I'm familiar with you know, the water absorbing polymers that they've been using on consumer seed, this seems a little bit different. Talk a little bit about using soil surfactants as seed coatings. This all came from a go back a decade ago. I got this phone call from a young graduate student at Brigham Young University. We had this idea about revegetating areas that had been subject to wildfires, a big problem in the Western U.S. Yeah, and not going away anytime soon. And not going away. In the U.S., Canada, around the world. And he had this idea. And the young grad student's name was Matthew Madsen. And Matthew's now, a few years later, a professor back at Brigham Young. After, going, after leaving and going through another mm-hmm. position with USDA, he's now returned. And he had this idea. Frankly, he pursued the idea. Hey, Stan, can I have some surfactant? Sure. You know, we work with him, give him some material, and he found that if he put a surfactant coating, and the surfactant was in a multi-layered type of coating applied to a seed, or barrier coatings and clays and all the standard stuff, but specifically some material to protect the seed from the surfactant, he found that he could improve stand establishment in a number of, of native species. And specifically in, in wildfire areas. And, and some of these native species are difficult to establish even under ideal conditions, right? Oh, yes. Very difficult. The success rate is in the single digits. I mean, failure is the norm. He found that his technology would improve and establishment and germination. Matter of fact, he was working with a fellow from Cornell on the project. Taylor? Oh, yeah, Alan Taylor. Alan Taylor is our seed scientist. Yeah, retired yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we're in search of a new seed scientist. I got to tell you, this is an area that's really lacking scientifically. Okay, so so you have the surfactant coating on there. Would this be something you could see a future for in bentgrass when we seed new greens? Well, we did a bunch of work looking at it, and I know that it had been commercialized by Barenbrug on some seed specifically in Europe. And frankly, I don't know where it is today. There were issues with manufacturing, and it was also at a point where it was a costly procedure. 
wasn't inexpensive like some of the polymers that I've put on, but it was far more efficacious. They saw better stand establishment, both in water repellent and wettable soil. Hmm. Hmm. Faster emergence, better density, better growing. Yeah. And this is all in the published literature. I mean, papers that uh, either Matthew was involved with or, or Micah, and Mike has a couple of papers. So there's some really cool things it did, but it, I don't think it's ever taken off commercially in the marketplace. But if you wanted more information on that, I would reach out to someone at uh, Barenbrook in the Netherlands, because I believe it is available there. Okay. So let's move into the mature plants now. And you made the comment earlier that it's like a biostimulant light. Let me give you some just perspective here. I learned in, I think it was in the 80s, uh, we would put on a soil surfactant early in the year when we didn't have, even Embark was sort of new to the market. We put it on, it would cause a burn, and we wouldn't get seed heads. (laughs) <laughs> in annual bluegrass. So, and I think Randy Kane actually published something out of the yep. Chicago District Golf Association years and years ago about the use of soil surfactants for this. So, my question is we know these things can have that sort of an effect, the phytotoxic effect. You're talking about a biostimulant effect. Is it your sense it's a direct effect on plant metabolism or growth, or is it the benefit that? it provides by creating a better soil environment? It's the latter. Yeah, okay. From the indications we have so far, it's the latter. It's influencing that, if I may, the rhizosphere environment. It's creating a better environment for not only the plant to access water. Again, there are some publications that came out beginning, I guess it was last year, they started to publish uh, some work coming out of uh, University of Göttingen in Germany, University of Bayreuth, and uh, ETH uh, in Zurich. Uh, a bunch of soil biophysicists saying, yeah, there's something going on here. Things like increased microbial populations, increased root density. And we've been following on that and finding, yeah, some of the compounds that were reported on a few years ago, including in some of this literature, we're finding that this new formulation that we've developed is even more efficient. So looking at things like rooting effects, we're seeing up to 30% more rooting in comparison to a whole range of other commercial products. And that work wasn't done by us. It was done by a researcher in Australia, unbeknownst to us. We went out with, I think it was eight different commercial materials at label rate and compared to the experimental. And the experimental had a, that, that we were working on, had a dramatically different effect. Wow, I knew turf growing in Chistock and treated soil generally had better roots, but not like this. So soil surfactants, these copolymers, the chemistry here, it's carbon-based chemistry, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you differentiate what it does to the soil from a hydraulic perspective versus adding all this carbon for stimulating microbial activity? And is there any evidence that that carbon you're adding is stimulating microbial activity, or is it really just the hydrology? It, a, a good hunk of it is going to be the hydrology that's being affected. While the carbon in the surfactant can be degraded by microorganisms, it is not what I would describe as readily degradable. It's going to degrade over 60, 90 days, but it's not going to be degradable like the access that the plant now has to nutrients because of the better hydrology. So it's not a right to carbon source. Okay. So you raised another interesting point about utilization of these products. 
You know, Bill Kreiser has sort of pioneered the whole idea of plant growth regulator use and longevity and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Have you guys given any thought to helping superintendents determine spray intervals? I know I'll take a crack at the business a little bit. You know, what are they named like HM120 or PV90, you know, that basically supposedly gives the longevity of the product. Do you foresee us being able to actually know good spray intervals or are we always going to rely on sort of waiting to see when it starts to break again? Is this breakdown by microbes, which, as you just said, is not necessarily rapid. Is it something knowable that could inform our application intervals? Currently, we have trials out at one, two, three locations, all in the eastern U.S., looking at responses over time to different application scenarios, and data are being collected using remote sensing to enable us to get some feel on not only effective rates, but effective intervals. We can't really project anything from that. So there are two graduate students and one consultant working on this project with us. So you're trying to figure out these intervals, and I'm assuming you've got to do it in different soil types, right? And different grasses? At the present moment, we're looking at cool season grasses on USGA spec greens. That's the place to park. Let me rephrase that, on sand greens. Okay. That's where we're starting. Okay. We also have a fairway trial underway. Okay. But right now, it's anybody's guess how long they last. Yes or no? It's anybody's guess if you don't do systematic studies. I mean, for example, we look at performance over time, and we know that certain materials will last roughly a month. Others don't. I'm looking at a trial right now where you have product A is performing exceptionally and product B is breaking under these kinds of stress conditions in less than a month. Okay. So a lot of it is empirical, you know, give and take. I go out and I test it. Okay, how long does it last? Can we project for the future? I think that's going to be hard. It may be feasible, but it's going to be hard work because it has to be modeled. And you have to collect the data on what's happening under a diversity of environments to build your models. Okay. Again, back to the folks in Germany, mm-hmm. Switzerland, that are doing all the basic research and the modeling. I mean, I got this huge question about why aren't we doing this work in the States? All this great work is going on in Europe. But I'll hold that for another conversation, Stan. These products that we're using and the growth that we're talking about and the way soils break... Again, I started out by talking to you about the differences between native soils and and sand-based systems. Mm -hmm. I really never thought you needed a soil surfactant use on native soils. But again, I'm a big fan of Bill Kreiser's work. And I know Bill's been using it on his native soils and really seeing very positive responses. When you see, you know, I got, let's say I'm a golf course superintendent. I got 30 acres of fairways. I got maybe two or three different soil types. When I buy a product that says right on the label 90 days or 120 days, do you think they get those numbers from, they must get them from sand. Could I expect that kind of performance on a native soil? Because that's obviously going to be a big thing when I've got to go out with three or four or five tanks to spray that many fairways. Do those longevity things shape up regardless of the soil type or are they going to be strongly influenced by soil type? I'd really like to avoid discussion on long-term materials because the work that I've been involved with, we never saw a long-term material really lasting much more than 90 days. Okay. And what's happening? You know, during the course of that 90-day period, there's all these interactions going on. So you put a product down on, let's say, May 15, if you're here in the Northeast, 
what's going on in the middle of the summer when Mother Nature decides to get hot and sultry and dry? Well, you've got some biodegradation, of course, going on. But you've got these plants that are actively growing. They're placing all this exudate into the root zone. You've got these leaf clippings ending up on the surface of the soil. Oh, you've got golfers walking across the soil and abrading the leaves that have lots of wax in them. Where does that wax go? It doesn't volatilize. Hmm. It ends up on the soil surface. So that surfactant you applied in, in May undergoing biodegradation. Oh, you may be top dressing too, right? She's putting something else on top of it, and you get all these layers developing, be it sand, be it detritus, be it waxes accumulating. Mm-hmm. You can end up with a hydrophobic layer, the thickness of a piece of paper right on the surface. Yeah. So tell me what that 90-day material is doing. Okay. <laughs> I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with my pal Stan Costco, and we're talking soil surfactants and a whole bunch of things right now. Uh, we're going to take a break, get a message from our sponsors who make this all possible. We'll be right back. I remember when here at Frankly Speaking, we were in need of another title sponsor a few years ago as the industry continued to contract. I was at a regional golf course superintendent association meeting and I had a chat with my longtime colleague, Tom Weiner, the VP of sales for the plant food company. Now, I'd gone a few rounds with Tom over the years during our early days at Beth Page and the two U.S. Opens and PGA events. I was pleased when Grant Platt said yes, and I'm still pleased to support the use of plant food products that are based on university research. Products and services is what set Plant Food Company apart. Meet with a plant food representative to see for yourself. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Stan Koska. Stan, I want to talk to you about three things regarding what I would call sort of activation or or synergism. A lot of superintendents will put the wetting agent on, uh, you know, in the morning spray, but won't run the heads. How much does that interact with the chemistry you're using? And it might not be your recommendation, but it is. Is it okay? And has your research indicated the products still function well? Rule of thumb. Dan Koska's rule of thumb, get it on the soil, irrigate it in as soon as reasonably possible. But all treatments need to be irrigated in before the next day. How much water do you apply? Hey, if you can get a quarter inch on, great. The more the merrier. The more the merrier. Well, you don't want to start putting two inches on, but if you can get, you know, an inch, a quarter of an inch at least. Okay, so this raises a question that I've, you know, we talk about a lot in the spring up here. And I've had some conversations with colleagues on this podcast in the past, and that is the use of wetting agents in conjunction with fungicides to increase uh, infiltration and penetration to make it more of an effective drench, so to speak. And you know, mm-hmm. Jim Kearns has played around with this a little bit in North Carolina State. At least some of his mm-hmm. data is the only data that I'm familiar with. You, you and Mike might have others, but can you talk a little bit about Again, are, are, is there any interaction with the kinds of products you like in partnering with fungicides that you need to get down there for a drench? Let's assume it's for fairy ring or it's for take-all patch or summer patch. Well, the good Dr. Fidanza uh, did a bunch of work uh, 10, 15 years ago uh, looking at surfactants enhancing certain soil-directed fungicides, and specifically things like ProStar was the name of it, glutalanil, the active ingredient. He's looked at 
arachnostrobin, zoxostrobin. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at things like fairy ring, those can clearly be enhanced with the addition of a surfactant. The other areas of particular diseases, I think that it needs a lot more work. Okay. It just needs a lot more work. I think the best work's been done with fairy ring. So, and that's just a matter of penetration, right? It's not really an interaction with the wetting agent and the fungi itself. It's just getting the fungicide to penetrate further. Well, it's yes? getting the fungicide to penetrate, but it's also, at the same time, dealing with any hydrophobicity that's been uh, imparted by the fungus. That's the battle. Right. Penetration is one thing, but getting, getting through that hydrophobic zone is the other. Now, there are some new things going on. I'm going to take you away from fungicides, and feel free to beat me if you want. Look at some work with uh, nematodes. Hmm. There are some indications that some materials, uh, particularly abamectin, can be enhanced hmm. by certain soil surfactants. And Bruce Martin's been doing some work on that over the last couple of years and seeing some nice reproducible results. Is it the same kind of thing, Stan, where it gets the nematicide in contact with the film of water that the nematode is living in, or is there some direct effect of the surfactant on the organism? And if you would see me leaning up against my colleague's pickup truck right now, you'd see me squirming as I stand here, because (laughs) we're trying to sort that out, because sometimes you can see it with the nematicide, but you can always see it with the surfactant alone. Think about that. Well, here's the other thing that came to mind, and, and it just got me all excited. I was uh, doing a, our Cornell Turf show with Dr. Ben McGraw at Penn State University. Ah, Ben, yes. Right, and, and Ben was talking about exploring various soil surfactant chemistries mm-hmm. for potential as insecticide synergists, uh, maybe even helping to overcome some pyrethroid resistance. I agree. In insects. Okay. Uh, Are you familiar with this work? Because here he's talking about a direct impact on reducing the hydrophobicity on the insect's cuticle itself. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about, I mean, obviously we can talk to Ben about this, but I'm sure you're at least a little bit familiar with the concepts of using it for that purpose. I'm going to say that we've collaborated a bit with Ben. He's seen some very preliminary indications, and I think Ben is the best guy to talk to. But the hydrophobicity on an exoskeleton isn't going to be demonstrably different than what you see in the soil, is it? No. As a matter of fact, the insect carcasses in the soil certainly have their contribution to hydrophobicity in the soil. It's not just plant detritus, or it's, it's also insect detritus as well as other fauna that live in the soil. So, Stan, as we wrap up here, let me ask some just general questions to bring us back above the water here, <laughs> out of the deep dive. Why aren't we studying this as much in the States? You you and Mike and my old pal Johnny, Cesar and Cal, you know, you're always over in Europe. You're citing all this European work. I mean, we got all kinds of hydrophobic soils here. It's not like it's a unique thing even just to the turf industry. Why is there a uh, dearth of researchers focusing on this in the U.S., in your opinion? I'll turn it around a different way. Why is there such a preponderance in Europe? Ah. There's a preponderance in Europe because they feel that it's a major contributor to reducing the efficiency of water. They see the crises that we're facing on water globally, either on our consumption of it or climate change issues. They see it as a threat. And the EU governments, be it the European Union or their respective nations, are funding significant research in this area. Hence why the expertise is there. Okay, so... 
again, I just say, it's not like we don't have these things in the desert Southwest. I mean, we've got all kinds of uh, water issues and grasses and crops growing on sand. Is the water issue viewed more critically in Europe, you think, than it is here? I think there's a stronger connection between the water issue and some of the phenomena in the Vado zone. They get it. I don't think we necessarily connected as well here. You know, Stan, you've had a wonderful career, one that I've had a front, I've had a wonderful front row seat, not just through Mike and Cal and everybody, but also in your years with Aquatrols, you know, and all those Cornell folk. I think it was Bob Moore, right? The Cornell grad who started the company back in the day. And it got you to travel a lot. I'm assuming you got to see a good part of the world being the what I would always think would be the chief scientist for that company all these years. Is this where your elaborate culinary expertise that you tweet about once in a while comes from? Hmm. It goes back to having to learn how to cook when I was in <laughs> graduate school. Early in my professional career, I worked for an ag biotech company based here in, in Maryland. Now, I'm a plant bacteria guy. They were looking for somebody that knew how to work with one or another categories of what are referred to as endophytic bacteria, really plant pathogens for the most part. And I knew a couple of folks that referred me for the job. I was one of the the few graduate students ending up in that field. I got a job. And then they decided they wanted to work in France because France was a big potential market for corn, where they were doing a lot of their research. How's this for a circuitous story, Frank? <laughs> and nobody spoke French. They wanted somebody to go to, that could speak French. I grew up in a neighborhood that was French, Canadian, and Polish. I heard a lot of Canadian French being spoken growing up. And it was, to me, while I'm not fluent, I could stumble my way around a bit. Guess who got the assignment? So I got exposed to French cooking. Yeah, and and, and there is the moral of the best argument why more Americans should become bilingual in some way. Oh, amen. Because it will, if nothing else, it will expand your culinary expertise. And anybody that likes cooking, of course, likes uh, French cooking as pioneered in America by Miss Julia Child herself. Right? I'm assuming you got her book somewhere lying around. I've got more books in Italy, though, on cooking. Italian cooking and Middle Eastern are are bigger in my collection. Not bad for a uh, Polish-French guy or 100% Polish? Um, I'm entirely of Polish ancestry. Well, Stan, thanks so much for taking the time. It goes by too quickly. Really appreciate you doing it. And, And we are all very grateful for the time you continue to spend helping us all get smarter about this topic in the U.S. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time, Stan. It's a pleasure. Stan Koska, president of Rizo Solutions. I'm Frank Rossi. This was Frankly Speaking. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Dr. Stan Koska. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.